Whitney, something you don't know about me is I never even had a vibrator until I was 52 years old. I was born (laughs) when I was 52 years old. What? I know. That's why I love that we're sponsored by Sweet Vibrations. Oh, my God. Me too. Not only that, I mean, welcome to the world, Wednesday. I know. Welcome to the world. Okay, here's the amazing thing about Sweet Vibrations vibrators. They're under $50. They're waterproof. They come in all these beautiful, bright colors. Mm -hmm. They're chargeable. And they feel absolutely amazing. They feel amazing. And there's one for every vulva and preference. There are so many different Sweet Vibrations vibrators. What's your favorite one? Okay, my favorite one is the girl's best friend. I had never used anything like this before. I was like, "Eh, I love my bullets. I like this. I like that. Then I used the girl's best friends like literally two weeks ago. And it blew my face off. My orgasm was so strong. I was like, this is my new favorite toy for the rest of my life. I'm never using anything else again. Thank you, Sweet Vibrations. All right. And if you use the code WILDLOVE, you're going to get a discount. And those are going to be even less expensive. And you can buy two. So Wednesday, I have a new update to my daily routine. What is it? I've started using CBD religiously. You're into it. Oh my God, I'm into it. And you know, I was looking at some data about CBD and orgasm and sex. It seems like there's so much promise here. Yeah, I hear that it actually can strengthen your orgasms. And I mean, come on, who doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it can help you relax. If you have any anxiety or something prior going into sex or just in your daily life, have a little bit of CBD and watch yourself relax a little. Enjoy a little. And make sure it's one farm CBD. Yeah. The great thing about One Farm is not only that they're from Texas, so you know, I love that, but also they grow everything on their own land. It's USDA organic. It's small batches. And really what's interesting that I didn't know prior to this was that a lot of CBD companies are basically marketing companies and they're not growing their own. They don't have their own farms, but One Farm actually does. Yeah. They're all about craft and quality. So if you're going to try CBD, try this one. Yes, and why you want to try it because you get 15% off. If you use Wild Love, the code Wild Love, you get 15% off. Enjoy those CBD infused orgasms. Delicious. Wednesday, I know you are now officially obsessed with our guest. I fell so hard for the sexologist, Michelle Hope. She tells us what it's like to be a biracial woman in sexology. Growing up with the lesbian mom, what else did she tell us about? Yeah, and she talked about her kind of crazy upbringing and story and how she was able to bring those lessons into what she does today. I mean, she is very, very, very inspiring, and she's a wealth of knowledge. I think you guys are really going to like this podcast. Love her. And we're back at Gotham. We're back at Gotham Podcast Studios. I've really been looking forward to this interview mm-hmm. with Michelle Hope for a long time. I know. We were sitting in her kitchen last night and you were freaking out. I was freaking out a little bit. I was very excited. It was yes. like meeting a hero. Okay, here's what I want to say. If you have an Instagram feed and you're interested in sex positivity and all you're seeing is white women in the sex positive space, something's wrong because there are women like Michelle Hope out there educating being change makers, put her on your Instagram feed, and <laughs> she's going to talk to us today about uh, being a black woman in the sexology space, her personal journey. I hope you will, Michelle. Yeah. I'm so excited. I'm mm-hmm. a little starstruck. You might have to start with the questions, but like, welcome. Thank you so much. I mean, I'm truly flattered. One that you asked me to be a part of this, a part of your podcast, a part of your community. Um, and second of all, just the rave reviews I'm getting. Um, I really, (laughs) really appreciate that, uh, because I think there are some misnomers about the work, um, and about being a person of color in this work. Yeah. I think the narrative, um, is that Caucasian people lead these discussions. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that has a lot to do with like privilege. Um, and I also think it has to do a lot with shame and how communities of color are oftentimes really rooted in their faith and, and in their religion. And we know that religion kind of begets a lot of shame when it comes to sex. So I'm just kind of out here trying to educate people and help people understand like 
the intersections of race and sexuality. They, yeah, like you can't really disentangle them from each other, right? And this is what Michelle Hope's amazing TED Talk is about, part of it, which I was just telling right, Michelle that I sent my researcher, Jane Clare, to Michelle's TED Talk because I couldn't go. And Jane came back from it like drumming with inspiration. <laughs> and can you just tell us a little bit about your TED Talk? It was TED Talk Harlem, yep. how it came about yep. and who, you know, how it was curated because it was a unique thing in the sexuality space. Yeah. So I've been in this industry for about 10, 15 years. Um, I've been in education for almost 20 years. And, you know, something I've noticed is that people of color oftentimes don't have conversations about sexuality. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, we don't talk about that in the streets. Right. Um, but I, it totally like, we're going to go quiet on that. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I'm an individual who believes Um, based on the work that I've done, I've worked in Los Angeles, I've worked in Oakland, I've worked kind of all over in very urban spaces. And a lot of the issues and challenges I see in communities of color are rooted in sexuality issues, whether it's identity, whether it's intimate partner violence. If you just look at the rates of STIs and, and the disproportionate, um, positive results of across the board and STIs, it, it is impacting communities of color. And I'm like, well, why aren't we having these conversations? Mm-hmm. Because if we can normalize conversations around sexuality and shift the mental model for us to not think it's a bad word or a bad thing. Or embarrassing or shameful. Right. right. But rather, it's a very human thing. And it's the one thing that connects all humans. I think we could improve um, some of these outcomes. Right. Um, you know, the way it came about was Last March, I did three months um, at what I called Baby Rikers, uh, which was I taught on Saturdays and Sundays a sexuality, love, and relationship class to young men incarcerated. At, wow, I love that. Yeah. Well, yeah. Sounds a lot better at- than it was. At, it was at Spofford because they've moved minors off of Rikers. So I called it Baby Rikers because all of these oh. young people came from Rikers. Oh, I don't know what Rikers is. Rikers R- Island. Rikers is an infamous prison. Yes. Okay. In New York City, and people say sent to Rikers, and it sort of means like just sent out, like that's it for you, right? Yeah, Michelle? yeah, yeah. And oftentimes there are a like lot of life, like life sentences. Not necessarily life sentences, but oftentimes when you end up there, it's really hard to get out. Okay, and it's harrowing, very much so. And there's a lot of prisoner mistreatment, very much so. And okay, yeah, okay, so, yeah. It's, I mean, the criminal justice system in itself is a. Sh- a problem. A racist shit show. Absolutely. Just get it Um, out there. And and so, and like the policies in New York, historically, people can't pay bail. So they end up in Rikers and then they get infractions. So that adds to their sentencing. And so this place, as New York is trying to close Rikers, they have taken all of the minors or under 18 off of Rikers. So you were talking about sexuality to young incarcerated men who had been moved from Rikers, yes. a harrowing place. Yes. And your TED Talk came out of those conversations. Yeah, because what happened was I had left Rikers one day and gone to like, because after being in Rikers for four hours, you, you need a glass of wine. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> or like 17. <laughs> I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah. So I was at a, a bar in Harlem that I w- had been hosting uh, sex ed trivia nights at. And it was like a Sunday afternoon and um, I was talking to the manager who I knew about my experience and a guy was sitting there and he was like, wait, what? What do you do? And I said, I was a sexologist and it was an African-American man and he kind of looked at me, which happens all the time Mm -hmm. in communities Mm -hmm. of color when I tell them what I do, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because when I'm with Caucasian people and I say that, they don't bat an eyelash. You know, uh-huh. so just huh. in that it, it becomes so he was interested and I, I kind of told him and he was like, you know, I'm putting together a TED talk. I think you should maybe talk about this. And I was really the, our conversation was rooted in the fact that people of color aren't having enough conversations. Right. So um, and I am biracial. My mother's white. Um, she's a lesbian. I grew up in a trailer park in Indiana. Um, and all of that beauty, confusion and chaos growing up in, yeah. you know, Pence country mm-hmm. during the 80s with a lesbian mother and being biracial and being bi- I mean there were so many factors um you know love was love is what my mom taught me uh-huh. there wasn't a lot of dialogue about this act of sex or sexuality as a whole just more that people can love anybody yeah okay um, she's also you know a, a, a social justice person always has been 
Um, and so, you know, I think that I wanted to tell that story. And then I also wanted to talk about how it doesn't matter where I go. I could be in a bathroom at a bar and all of a sudden I'll start talking about sexuality. That's your way, Michelle. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, 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 my saying is from the womb to the tomb, sexuality <laughs> impacts your everyday life. So yeah. I want to talk about it and help educate people I in like any way. I like that, like that it's a whole, that there's a whole lifespan to your sexuality from the womb to the tomb. There absolutely I'm start is. to use that. Yeah, Please because do. it makes sex sound as important as it is. And it makes sex sound universal. Mm-hmm. It's for and everybody. And not taboo, right? It's and not something not that we shouldn't be talking about because it's it's interwoven through every single waking hour. Yeah, all of our decisions, what we wear, how we shake people's hands, um, how we show up to work, mm-hmm. how we show up in relationships, and not just mm-hmm. romantic relationships, but also platonic, right. familiar, professional. So I, I really wanted to take the time to like talk about that. Yeah, and and you know the reason I had done some time in jails working with incarcerated men, although some of them may not get out for 15, 20 years, my thought process is when else are they going to learn this? And eventually they will come home. Right. Right. And, and we need to prepare them for healthy relationships to reduce recidivism of them going back because they got themselves in an unhealthy relationship or mm. they ended up with a baby. So they start making poor decisions around how to get money for the child, things of that nature. Okay. So how, what was that experience like for you? Cause I know you said it was, you know, spending four hours, you need a bottle of wine for sure. Yeah. Not so, even a glass. Yeah. Yeah. Give us a little insight into what that was like. Well, you know, there were days that it was awesome and I felt like I was really creating change. Mm-hmm. And then there were days where I left just so depressed and despondent. And, you know, I, I have a day job, um, which a lot of people don't know. They assume that my career is what they see online. Yeah, I thought you were a full-on, full-time sexologist because of your commitment and smarts. Yes, and I am. And even in my day job, you know, I designed reproductive health programming for one of the largest nonprofits in Harlem. Oh, cool. Um, So I designed programming from early childhood, prenatal, all the way to parenting classes, student sex ed classes, things of that nature. So, Can we know the name of that Yeah, Harlem Children's Zone. Okay, so if you are interested in getting involved and learning more, Michelle's working with the Harlem Children's Zone. Yeah, and we service about 44,000 a year. Oh, wow. Um, So when it comes to designing programs, I'm usually designing programs for somewhere between 10 to 12,000 youth. Um, And from time to time, I'm teaching. Uh, So I, I kind of go all the way across the board. Um, And when I started, they didn't have a program. And I just, you know, I started as a creative writing teacher and then became a caseworker. And again, sexuality issues kept coming up. up. Mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was um, impeding on academics for some people, whether it was identity issues, whether it was unhealthy relationships. So there was a correlation. So I just started asking and I had already been training or I had gone to school to get a master's in marriage family therapy. And then was like, with a specialization in African-American family studies. And back then, um, like 10 years ago, it's like, oh, people of color aren't really going to therapy, but they know what a coach is and they know okay. what education is. So I shifted to human development with an emphasis in adult learning theory. Because if I can help people unlearn, I can then reteach. Then you right, can reteach right. the lessons, including the lessons about sex. Yes. I wanted to ask a question about, you said that when you tell white people what you do, they don't bat an eyelash. But when you tell black people and people of color, there's a different response. Right. In your TED talk, you kind of get into why, Yep. you know, for our listeners who don't even understand, like, why is sexuality different for black women? You really get into it, into the history Mm -hmm. of misrepresenting black female sexuality, Mm -hmm. um, into the present moment and how it's different. Can you... Just speak to that a little bit. Yeah. And I think a part of the reason, let's let's just unpack it, it's yeah. racism. And it's the history of slavery in America and the oppression of women's bodies. Look at gynecology, for oh. example. Dr. Sims, who we consider the father of gynecology. We just only like yesterday took down that damn sat- statue in Central Park. Tell our listeners who he was. Yeah, yeah. we had a statue to this guy and we yeah. had to take it down. Yeah, so Dr. Sims um, during slavery times uh, would use slave women to learn about gynecology. Without anesthetizing. Without- yeah, oh and without God. consent, without- obviously, because they were slave women. And the first speculum was actually a bent fork. A bent fork? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, God. And, and to think, like, I feel like that is the impetus of it all, right? That's where it all begins. Um, us, I mean, we could go even further back to just slavery in yes. general. Yeah. Um, but then you have like Venus Noir and how she was an African-American slave woman who had really robust curves and, and a small waist and large breasts and a large buttocks. And even after death, they stuffed her body and would tour it around Europe. And that was called the hot and tot Venus, yes. right? Now we have Kim Kardashian. Now we're commodifying another the body yes. of another woman of color. Yeah, it, and I think, but I think there is a connection there because for a long time, women of color were said, "Your body is not right. Your body is too it's voluptuous. Freaky. Yeah, you have a fat ass, and use." And now we have people getting butt injections. And much respect to Kim, but I yeah. think she has even commodified the idea of black women's bodies. And then to some extent says, oh, I don't have a problem with race because I have a black husband and black children. Who did she recently pose as? Um, she did a photo. She, yeah, she like looked a, like, who was that? I can't. It was a black female singer, very beloved. Like Lena Horne. Was she Lena Horne? Yeah, I think that was what she was yeah. trying to go for. But it's like, how about you just be Kim Kardashian? How about you mm-hmm. be Kim Kardashian? And how about like an African-American woman do the photo? Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I think Kim is beautiful. I think what she's doing right now by using her power to try to help mm-hmm. people is great. But I, I don't want to deny the fact that she definitely has appropriated uh, culture in some ways. That's such a great pop culture example of how the commodification and exploitation of Black women's bodies resonates every day, whether that the hot and tot Venus mm-hmm. um, stereotypes are still informing our gaze, right? Okay. And, yeah. so and people's kind of, lives. Yeah. So we're just so I have an understanding of this because I am not, I don't understand this as much as you guys do. Um, so we're kind of talking about how, how Kim, and if we're using the pop culture, mm-hmm. how she's modifying her body to look more like a black woman's body. Yeah. And, and that's but, not good. I, I, here's the thing. it's I'm not saying that you can't alter your body whatever way you want. Uh-huh. I think it's the history of people telling women of color their bodies were not okay. And now all of a sudden, Kylie Jenner and the, the full lips, before they used to call them soup coolers. Right, women with big, large lips would be called soup. Have soup? Oh, she's got some soup coolers, or those are some dick sucking lips. But now, all of a sudden, fair-skinned women are doing this, and now it's all the rage. And I want lip plumpers, and I, and it's like, why? Um, when for so long, and even when women of color still have these natural features, we'll say, you know, you shouldn't be wearing that outfit or, you know, you, you have too voluptuous of a body to, uh, show up looking the way you do. But then when Kim Kardashian does it, it's, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. Mm. Um, and I think it's things like that and those stereotypes that continue to inform us. Additionally, pornography. Uh, mm, the right. BBC, the big black cock, this idea oh, yeah. that black men are have, hypersexual. Yes, are sexual and huge beasts and, and have scary. these large dicks. And yeah. it's like, no, that yeah. comes from like cock holding. And um, again, it re- it takes us back to slavery. Yeah. Um, and, and this idea of the buck, right? Yes. And like, like the other thing, what about like the welfare mom thing? Yeah. Like we wanted, we Project wanted Patty. white people wanted black women to be baby machines yep. during slavery. That yep. was what they were supposed yep. to do. Yep. And now we're saying like, oh no, that doesn't like black women being fertile even has to stop because they're like welfare moms. Yes. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about that this yeah. thinking gets pulled through yes. and it's still happening? And it gets pulled through history. Like you look at reproductive oppression through history. Look at what we did um, to understand how birth control works. Testing on Puerto Rican women in the 70s. Do you know about this, Whitney? Because no. I only recently learned about it, and I think our listeners need to hear you tell yeah, us. Yeah. You know, the idea of reproductive oppression is is not new. It's just something we're now starting to talk about. We have language for it, thanks to people like you. Yeah. And people like the women of Sister Song, who coined yeah. the term reproductive justice, which is the idea that all women should have the access to information, education, and care to make decisions about their bodies, their sexuality, their reproductive organs, when to have a child, when not Not to to have have a a child, child, how to end a pregnancy, as well as having the social support systems to raise that child. Everybody should have access to that privilege. Absolutely. And, And now it's like all people should have this. But throughout history, besides Dr. Sims, um, you had testing of progesterone in the 70s on Puerto Rican women. They gave Puerto Rican women 
20 times the amount of progesterone a body can handle. And they did not give them consent or they consented to getting in this opportunity. But they weren't aware of what was going on, how much they were getting. No. So what is that? What can that do to your body? Uh, make you sterile. There were like 45,000 women in one year that became sterile. And there were also, were there not also, um, initiatives, I don't know where we're going to public health initiatives in quotation marks to forcibly sterilize women of color in this country until like not that long ago. Right. Yeah. I mean, like you look at like the women in Puerto Rico, they were living in public housing. And so it was like a public health situation, but even birth control in general, is rooted in eugenics. Margaret Sanger, the woman who fought for birth control, really did it because she wanted to create a more... um, Almost like a master race, Yeah, yeah. And so the idea of birth control was that we could put these uh, welfare women on this birth control and we could slow down their procreation. Mm. Like the history that is there when you go get an exam from your OBGYN mm-hmm. and he or she uses a speculum or you pop a birth control pill. Yeah. The history of that, how that's tied up in racist practices is crazy. Is crazy. It is very crazy. And, and is that shifting now? No, I would say no. I think, I think to shift that, what we're doing right now is shifting that mental model. Okay. Okay. So we're changing our ideas around this. That is the most, like that's the deepest level, right? Then you have to look at power and control. So who has the power and control? Also, uh, where are the resources coming from? Mm. And then we have to go up a little further to talk about practices, which is throughout the medical community because medical apartheid is real. Um, and there then public are so, policy. There are many different healthcare systems, right? There's yep. the one up here and yep. then there's the one for everybody else. Yep. So sorry, I misspoke. There for sure, it's a tiered system. It's a tiered system and it doesn't even matter. In New York City, maternal mortality for black women is 12, 12 times, higher. times higher. You know, we had Latham Thomas. She was our first guest on our show because we thought mm-hmm. it was really important mm-hmm. that our first guest be a black woman talking to us about a lot of these issues. Mm-hmm. I know and the stats she was telling us about that was just incredibly mind-blowing. Yeah. It's Linda, scary. Linda Villarosa wrote that great piece for the New York Times about these numbers. And I feel like it finally maybe started sinking in yep. to people um, just how all these threads overlap, right? And that's what your career has been about, really, Michelle. I feel like as I hear you talk, and I read your life story, which we need to talk more about because it's so amazing. But I feel like you're weaving the threads together for people. Yeah. And I think that's my hope because if we can't shift the mental model, we will never get to policy change or practice change. Right. Um, I was lucky enough to be a part of uh, New York City's Department of Health had an initiative called a Community Engagement Group. And it was a group of about 45 nonprofits that focus in reproductive health care. Um, and, you know, we I knew about maternal mortality in 2016 hmm. and 2017, but it didn't really hit home until about 18, 19. Um, and we did an, an initiative and we worked collectively, all these nonprofits with the city agency, which is a first of its kind. Cause usually what happens is the city looks at the data. They then decide amongst city officials, oftentimes people that do not look like mm-hmm. the individuals who policy will impact. Right. And then they spout out policy. This was the first time people at the ground level were able to say, here's what we really need based on what our clients are telling us. And then that went up. And then they would create policy. So we did um, create the standards for respectful care at birth here in New York State or in New York City. And it's just really informing people on how to get what you deserve when it comes to labor and delivery. Because uh, a lot of people are misinformed. Additionally, medical schools have for a long time been teaching the misnomers that Black people have a higher pain threshold. Oh my God. We just talked about that. It's so dehumanizing. Are you actually a person of science? And you're saying that because of the amount of melanin in somebody's skin, they have, they can deal with pain better. What the actual hell kind of scientist are you? Well, here's the thing. It's all informed from history. Think about- Slavery. Totally. Those tough black women. Yes. Right? Yes. And there, (sighs) there have been some, uh, some literature put out 
to talk about, well, what, what are the causalities of maternal mortality? And perhaps it's the practice of, uh, you know, obs- being an obstetrician and the textbooks. Because when all these textbooks was written and all this science was put on paper, mm, okay, they right. only tested white women. Now what we're seeing is genetically women of color have can have different shaped pelvises, which will change how labor takes place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's a lack of education of what we need to do during pregnancy. And these maternal mortality rates, they go across socioeconomics it and education matter. levels. It doesn't matter. We talked about, we talked with Latham about what happened to Serena Williams. Oh, perfect example. And that Serena Williams herself saying, I am at the top of my game and I am a huge celebrity. I'm also a black woman. If this happened to me, we need to really look at what's going, going on. on. Yeah. And who knows... Like, I don't know about you listeners, but who knows their body better than someone like Serena? Yeah, absolutely. She's so tapped yeah. into her physical body for sure. She, I mean, I'm sure she can just sense when one thing is it's slightly off. off. And yeah. she did. And she told the doctor and they didn't and listen. And her whole team. And the doctor didn't listen. Yep. Yep. When we talk, I remember um, in Linda Villarosa's piece, and you have said this as well in, in your talks, that we... A lot of white people are like, what is this big mystery of the black maternal health crisis? Why is this happening? And the answer is racism. Totally. Like racism isn't just somebody with a bad, stupid, misinformed attitude on the street or in the schoolyard. It's institutionalized in medical textbooks, like you said. But I, I think one thing I would like to point out when it comes to this, it doesn't help anybody whether you're black, white, red, or brown, because the idea that a black woman can tolerate more pain speaks to this, uh, the, the, the medical field looking at women, white women as fragile. Right. And, oh, well, they can't handle as much pain. And that comes from like the cult of Southern womanhood, right? Yes. Yeah, being right. You right. Know right. And mm-hmm. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit. Bullshit. Um, so I think that there, there's that. Um, but I also think that sometimes, and this is awkward to say, um, then just say it because well, you're in the right place. <laughs> yeah, is that white privilege allows people to just turn a blind eye mm-hmm. and say, well, that doesn't impact me. Ooh. But what we have to remember is that if our community is not healthy, then it is impacting you. It, nobody's healthy. And you know what? You know this because you're in public policy and you've studied health policy in countries where there is a discrepancy mm-hmm. between healthcare, where there's really good healthcare and really bad healthcare just one example of what you're saying. People are shorter. In countries where there's equal health care, height, which is a really good metric for overall health, where health care is equal and everybody's getting the same kind of mm-hmm. health care, we see in those nations really tall people. Yep. Good health care and it suits everybody. Absolutely. It's, it and it I, and benefits I wish, everybody. Yeah. Sorry. And I wish people could understand the connections between like good health care and like your tax dollars. Right. Because like, (laughs) let's spell that out. Like if you really could understand like, okay, so if these people or if a certain group of people don't have good health care and they're not able to work at the same level, that means there may or may not be on public assistance. It's fine to be on public assistance, but we want to get you healthy. We want to get you happy and eventually get you off public assistance. Right. And public assistance is paid for, paid for by our tax dollars. Right. It's all connected people. It's, yeah. So we have to kind of wake up and say, no, we, we, we got to do better as a community. This is the amazing thing to me about Michelle's mission. And it's so inspiring to me is that you connected the dots and ended up doing sex ed bingo or yep. sex ed trivia games yep. in um, spaces in Harlem. Can yep. you tell us about how these things go together and how you came up with it? Listen, you got to meet people where they are. And because these topics are so not only taboo, but sometimes really painful for people to process based on whatever individual yeah. history or trauma they have. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we got to lighten this up a little bit. <laughs> Get a little light. <laughs> and when people laugh, because I studied like um, how the brain learns. Yeah. We know that in um, education and neuroscience, when you laugh or you have a positive memory attached to learning, you will remember that. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, let's just meet them where they are. Let's let's have some laughs. Let's have some jokes. Some of my sex ed trivia questions are like, what is the oldest dildo? 
Where do you go to do your sex ed trivia? Um, so we're about to get it restarted again. Uh, last year we did Harlem Ale House. Um, okay. I am currently working on some prospects. I don't want to put it out there, but for some other spaces that okay. are really popular. Fine. You're going to let uptown. us know so that Absolutely. when it's happening, we can tell. Also, us. what is the oldest dildo? I want to say it's like 50,000 years old and it was made of stone. It, it was Look, like coming full circle. Now the whole rage is using like crystal wands and stones <laughs> in your pussy. So, Hello. And yeah. like putting the rock, you know what? I don't want to bash anybody in their practice, but putting a stone in your vagina doesn't make it magical. Does it? Thank <laughs> I already got a magical pussy. Hello. What are you talking about? Hello. Listen, I don't need a stone to do that. I came out of a magical pussy. So you know I've got one. <laughs> okay. We do need to get to Michelle's personal history, which you yeah. like touched on a little bit about your personal history of coming out of a magical pussy and your amazing childhood because I just think when it wasn't always that amazing but it made me this amazing person so like you said earlier the beauty and the chaos and the confusion like most of our childhoods are like that totally so you grew up biracial in Indiana in a trailer park and your mom was a lesbian yes and you knew early on somehow that you couldn't talk about that because child protective services might come. yes can you tell us about that I mean that was ingrained in me growing up because in Penn's country <laughs> yeah um danger at the time it was definitely dangerous where you know child protective services could have taken me we could have lost our home my mom could have lost her job which actually did happen Um, When I was in like third grade, someone outed her at work. She worked in a factory and she uh, lost her job. I mean, my mother has... being a lesbian. Yeah. My mother has really bared the brunt of, you know, forms of oppression. Yes. um, In ways that, you know, I I have a deep level of respect for her. It's not to say we don't clash uh, because... You know, she's, she's your a, mom. She's yeah. my mom. <laughs> yeah, and she's all of our mothers. Yeah, she's my mother, and she's also a white woman who still lives in Indiana. So there this are sometimes. Wow, interesting. That gets deep. Yeah, so sometimes things are said or questions are asked that it's like, mom, like you should, like, I shouldn't be teaching you this. And she's she went back to school. She has a master's. She, you know, started a PhD and then got kind of sick with fibromyalgia. It's like, You're way too smart to be continuing to ask me certain questions. Yeah. Um, But I can understand how when you have lived in Indiana your whole life and you're exposed to so much, like just Indiana breeds racism. I'm from Michigan, Michelle. Uh, same same type of thing. Clan country. Oh, so is Indiana is very much so clan country. So I don't think there is an intention Mm -hmm. um, to sometimes say off-collar things. I think that it is just a part of your environment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that for people out there who are like, I'm not a racist, I think you have to look in the mirror and say, how many African-American friends or friends of color do I have? How many times have I thought about taking a trip to South Africa or uh, Ghana where slavery started? And I think that educating yourself to that and just really getting in the know and then don't act too woke. And, and when you're wrong, just be okay with being just wrong. Just be okay with being Because, I, I mean, even from personal, like, I'm from Texas, and I'm just now, I get a little sensitive or just kind of, like, don't know how to ask the right questions, you yeah. know? And so, and I'm the type of person that's like, if I say something wrong, then I fucking apologize. Like, I am I am all in for that, you right. know? But I feel like it is about, like, asking the right questions and, and being comfortable when you are wrong to learn. Yep. And also... I think it goes both ways. Amen. So being biracial, I struggle with this constantly. Mm. I get mad at the general population of Caucasian people sometimes. Yeah. And I get frustrated with the general population of African-Americans sometimes. Because on the side of African-Americans, I get it. It's not our job to educate people all the time. However, if we don't do it, who's doing it? Because we know schools are not doing it. No. And then on the other side, with Caucasian people, it's like, why aren't you asking? And if we're telling mm. you, why aren't you listening? And if Listen you don't up. have anyone to ask, Google it. Google. <laughs> you guys, <laughs> Read a book. Google. <laughs> you guys, when it comes to race and sexuality, Google is your friend, especially about the intersections of race and sexuality. Yeah, but like but, try to find out. Yeah, but try to read black women's work. Oh, for sure. Because this kind of goes back to why I got into this space in the first place. Okay, mm-hmm. go for it. Here we go. Okay, so, so here growing up, here growing I am. Up, I'm already hypersexualized at a young age because there were not many people that looked like me. I have had the same body type since I was 12. Which I'm just going to say, Michelle is 
Amazing looking. Oh, thank you. (laughs) And and I think that, you know, I started watching Dr. Ruth and I was like, oh, this is awesome. And then there was Jenny McCarthy who had that, who was a part of that dating show. And I was like, I want to be just like that. And then Dr. Drew came out and I was like, this is super cool. And then probably because I'm biracial and grew up in a racist space, I was like, hold on a minute. How is it that white people are telling all people? Like, why are white people allowed to set the standards? Why is that the baseline? Right. Of how to feel, think, act in sex and love in relationships. That seemed off to me. Yeah, where's the... But I couldn't find people of color. Then I got to high school. And again, for a long time, we had tried to hide the fact that my mother was a lesbian. But similar to Anderson Cooper, it was like the worst kept secret in my town. Okay. Mm -hmm. It Um, was like the knowing and not knowing. Right. How old were you when you knew that your mom was a lesbian? Oh... Probably just before, super, like one. Was it a conversation? No, no, she had a she had a lover that helped. Okay, okay, okay. It was happening. Yeah, it was, it was, happening it was just all there. Around. Got it. Okay. So to me, it wasn't even lesbianism until it was. You can't tell anybody. We don't uh, want anybody to know. Then it became bad. So then, my freshman year of high school, um, I was in class one day, and a boy was making fun of me, saying very awful, awful things. You probably eat your mom's pussy. You probably die. Oh my god! And guess what? No teachers came to the rescue. Nobody said a word. Because at that time, nobody cared. Bullying wasn't a thing. Bullying wasn't a thing. Oh, kids will be kids. And racism, we're just going to ignore it and homophobia, whatever. whatever. Because we get fired as a teacher immediately because I would beat some ass. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guess what Michelle did. Yeah. (laughs) So, and this was from another African-American student. So now they really aren't paying attention. Like, eh, whatever. Let them duke it out, right? Let the black kids fight each other. Yeah. And so I remember I smacked this young man and then, um, <laughs> you know, cause that's, yeah. I was so angry and I of just course. like on the back of the head, kind of like, you know, popping somebody on the back of the head, like, yep. stop, leave me alone. Then he hauled off and punched me in the face and broke my eye socket. <gasps> um, and the school had just put out a policy where if anybody got in a fight, both people would be suspended and they would get arrested. So my freshman year, not only I took that punch like a man though, I didn't fall down, um, I, I had a, a broken eye socket. I had a black eye for about six months. I was suspended from school. And I also was put on um, juvenile probation for fighting. For being punched in the eye. Yeah, because I started the fight is also what they said. Also because you're black. Because you're biracial. Yeah. Let's put it out there. Yeah. And, and so that was really difficult. And then after that experience, because again, I wasn't really popular with African-Americans in high school. I still didn't really understand race. I didn't know where I fit. So... It was just coming, like all the young white people I grew up with was like, you're not really one of them. And that was kind of the reinforced message. So mm. going through negrescence, negrescence is coming yeah. to understand your blackness um, right. in your life. And they have like, white people have the same kind of process. It's kind of like Erickson, like the yeah. law of like, or not the law, but like the stages of development. Okay. But it's really rooted in race. So that was my freshman year. And then, you know, things just kind of spiraled. And my sophomore year, um, I experienced sexual assault. Um, and that's shitty and, and it is, but I don't identify myself as a rape survivor. I am a rape thriver. You're a rape thriver. Mm-hmm. Cause I am thriving. I took something that was bad. Yep. Um, now it got darker before it got brighter. Cause that's a part of the process. Yeah. If you've experienced sexual assault, oftentimes you will continue to punish yourself by exposing yourself to dangerous situations. And I experienced sexual assault multiple times after that. And there were some addiction issues and drinking and alcohol and all that. To self-medicate, right. again, totally normal. But at the yeah. time, I didn't have the language. I hadn't gone to school with a class that told me I could tell somebody and that it wasn't my fault. I had internalized all this. And I'm like 15. Oh, that's a lot. It was a lot. Jesus. So, you know, junior so, junior year, senior year, not great. Barely graduated from high school. And college wasn't really an option at that time. So what option did I have? You know, I knew people said I was pretty. So I started promo modeling at Sears. Okay. In the, Sears. In the appliance okay. section. Okay. Yep. And, um, appliance model. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And then I met a young woman who was like, after my 18th birthday, was like, you know where you can make some real money, right? And I was like, where? And she 
asked me to come to this club and I would dance for money. So I became a dancer. I also was like working at Hooters. Again, now I'm hypersexualizing myself. Okay, mm-hmm. got it. Right. Because yeah. that's what I that's what I am. I've been told my whole life I was sexy. You know, never in high school w- would people call me pretty or beautiful. I was just the sexy one. So again, the mental model, yes. what society had told me about myself, what I was repeating the narrative to myself. Yeah. So I was like, okay, no problem. So it was interesting because it was in a strip club and I was there for seven years. I was a dancer for seven years. Best body in my life. Sometimes oh, I'm like, but, yeah. somebody bring me the pole again because I want those abs back. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I, I had a pole in my college room in my um, apartment. That shit is so hard. I was like, I've been is. an athlete my whole life. Got this. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, yeah, no, I don't. Right. No, yeah. I don't I'm got it at all. I'm going to help myself right now and say that I was a stripper to put myself through graduate school. So the, we're talking about two very different experiences. I like, I didn't feel... I didn't have your experiences yep. and I went into it in a very different way. Like we're very pro sex work on this show, but it's interesting that you're showing us there was a narrative behind yeah. you. I need money. Making, yeah. I, yep. call, I didn't, I, I mean, me too. I needed money. Yeah, but like, yeah. But you're putting it also in the context of having been hypersexualized yeah. and like, so there are different contexts that bring women to, to that sex space. work mm-hmm. and to that space. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your experience there. So I was there seven years and I'll never forget, um, that was where I learned about sex, right? Oh, yeah. And sexuality and polyamory and swinging. And How did you learn that there, Michelle? Because, girl, this was a male and a female strip club. Oh. So Monday, mm. mo- Sunday through Friday was women. Saturdays, Saturday nights, they would have men at one stage. And then all the other stages were women. And there was like, I want to say maybe... Four, six, seven stages. Was this in okay. Indiana? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and and so there were men strippers and women strippers, and there were people who were married but were polyamorous and were swingers. Right. And like, okay. So just, I was sucking it all up. Yeah. Yeah. You're um, seeing this firsthand. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I remember once seeing a woman go out with a client, and I went to go grab a cheeseburger because you know strip club food is like the best. I don't know why. <laughs> It's like so a little true. bit of that booty juice is on the food and it's the seasoning it. <laughs> it's like so good. So I went out to get a burger <laughs> and I remember seeing a client in a car with someone. And I remember like witnessing her like go down on the client. And I went back in and there was a, a not the house mom, but a, a stripper who had been a stripper for a long time. She was probably, I was 18. She was probably in her thirties, mid thirties at the time. And I remember being like, girl, she out there hoeing. And the woman grabbed me by the arm and pulled me to the corner and said, how dare you ever judge somebody? You don't know what their story is. That is her. And this is the first time I had heard that is her body, which means it's her choice. Wow. Powerful. Okay. Even now I get goosebumps thinking about that. I just got goosebumps. Mm -hmm. Just really like that is where I learned that everybody's body is their own and what they choose to do with it. That's on them. And by the way, I just love that in this story, like, the strip club is like a site of education. Totally. Because those women, like you said, were, this woman was making a choice and to have a, another woman reframe it for you like oh, that. She was like, that woman has kids. She got to put food on the table. So don't you ever judge somebody like that. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> that was like. And, and it's just stayed with me, um, you know, and then I left Indiana um, to move to Los Angeles. I was like, I'm going to be Halle Berry. I had $500 in a trunk of stuff. And I went. And so I then in LA, um, I danced for a few more years to kind of help right. um, me pay my way through, you know, community college, right, right. doing the kind of community thing. And I would sometimes in the daytime volunteer my time at a homeless shelter on Skid Row. And then at night I would take like three trains and two buses an hour outside of Los Angeles to Long Beach to dance in Long Beach. And then sometimes I would end up spending most of my earnings to get a cab. I didn't have a car to get a cab back to uh, Los Angeles. So again, a lot of learning, like working off Skid Row in the early 2000s was crazy. Talk about sexuality issues. You had uh, sex workers um, who who weren't necessarily being sex workers for money or for advancement. It was to feed a drug habit. This is like what um, our guest from Decrim New York, Jessica Raven, talked to us about a right. lot. Like yep. yeah. all the many forms of transactional sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and and what's interesting is um, some people, I've had some experiences where 
some Caucasian sex workers are not big fans of me. I was once called a swerf, a sex worker, exclusionary feminist. What? Um, a swerf. Yeah, I didn't even know that was a thing. But the reason why is because um, I was in conversation with, uh, I was on a panel, which I took way too much space. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, and one of the points I was trying to make was like, granted, if you want to do sex work, great. I support you. But do not forget that you went to an Ivy League school. Oh, And yes. this is a choice. And there exactly. are- there That's is, what I'm saying about myself. Yeah. I made that choice, but not everybody. It's different. Some people, it's, right, it's right. not that like a, a rock and a hard place, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, that's different. And, and so I think that when I point that out, that makes people uncomfortable. Um, oh, but I on. think we have to- we have to acknowledge yeah, that. The economics of doing that work are very different for different women. Yes. And the safety levels are and as the well. safety mm-hmm. levels. Um, granted, doing any kind of... Because let's face it, I'm just as much of a sex worker being an indoor sex worker dancing because there's indoor and outdoor. And then if you're an outdoor sex worker, you may have a stroll or whatever, mm-hmm. right? So like really recognizing that sex work is work, yes. Yeah. And that if you are in any industry where you help people achieve sexual gratification, that is sex work. And you should be proud of it. Mm-hmm. At this point, mm-hmm. I think also some sex workers were upset because at, at this point I said, I am an academic sex worker now. I help people reach sexual gratification. I just am not on a pole anymore because my arthritis won't let me. <laughs> and um, I'm using academics and, and education to inform people on how to have better sex, yes. safer sex. I love yeah. this. I love that. Um, conf- First of all, I love that you went from being a stripper, erotic dancer, whatever people want to call it, whatever you prefer to call it. Mm-hmm. That I love reframing sexology as a form of sex work. It is. And also, I love that that was your place where you got an education yeah. and a feminist education and yeah. an intersectional education and, and a hustler's education. And a hustler's mm-hmm. education. So when I moved to LA with $500, nobody was going to okie doke me because I had worked in the strip club <laughs> and the house always wins. So yeah. I always had my eye like, mm, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so I think all of that kind of led to this space where I went through, through um, community college and yeah. then I went, I transferred into Pacific Oaks um, and got an undergrad in human development and then immediately went on to marriage family therapy with an emphasis in AFAM studies. Okay. So a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people, our, our listeners are pretty open-minded, but like, you know, just putting a pin right now into how, into this transition, which we might think like, oh, how weird to go from being a stripper to being a graduate student. Nuh-uh. Not weird at all. Nuh-uh. So many people. You, Not you, weird at all. That, that paid your way through grad school. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. And you, I feel like I hear that story a lot. Yeah. I mean, yeah. more often than not. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. If, you know what we strippers would always say? It's better than waiting tables. Yeah. You make more money. Yep. Totally. Mm-hmm. You expose yourself to a lot of verbal abuse. A really funny guy <laughs> once said to me, wow, waiting tables must be really bad because every stripper I talk to says it's better than waiting tables. But <laughs> yeah. hell, it was. Yeah. 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 Um, but I think that you know, all of this, excuse me, has made me realize that I am privileged, right? I am privileged to have this story. Mm -hmm. I am privileged to sit with both of you. And I am privileged uh, to be able to do this work that I am so passionate about. I mean, you know, what really pushed me is after the strip club and after being in that space, or not really after, during, that was when I got the confidence to tell somebody I'd experienced sexual assault in high school. When you were dancing. Yeah. Was at, it that the other women were there? And It wasn't even was at the, the strip club. It oh, was to see, a friend. It was to a friend. But it just, I feel like I had become more sexually confident. Right. And I gave less fucks. Yeah. And I had started to realize, like, that wasn't my fault. And when I told a friend, oh. I heard a story back yeah. that mirrored my own. And then I started telling yeah. more people like and it became an avalanche of very similar stories. And that's when I was like, okay, okay. I know I wanted to be Halle Berry, but... Um, <laughs> Next time around. <laughs> I got to change. I got to switch this up because right. we have to start having these conversations. Yeah. Something has to change. Okay. I just have this idea. Just bear with me. Um, <laughs> if Halle Berry's listening, you need to play Michelle Hope. There needs to be a movie. That one day okay. we can hope. We, okay. We can only hope. Um, Go on. Yeah. So I just was like, you know what? I want to become a Dr. Ruth type. And while I was in LA, I was doing the Hollywood thing. I was trying to get on TV. Yeah. But I decided I'm not going to play a character. 
And for mm. people who are actors, great skill set. I was like, I, w- I don't want to be a talking head. I don't want somebody to give me my script. I want my voice, my head mm-hmm. to, to deliver the script, the narrative, the story. Yeah. So that's really what pushed me to go into grad school. I followed her career. A lot of people don't know this. Dr. Ruth doesn't actually have a doctorate in psychology. No, she doesn't, right? She has a master's in therapy, but back then, um, somehow her doctorate, she got grandfathered in because this is before. Yeah. But I think her doctorate is in education. Yeah, she has an EDD, right? Yes. She's not a PhD. Yeah, she's she's an an EDD. And so I followed her career. Interesting. So I, I went marriage family therapy, but then shifted to human development. Then she worked in, um, she actually still lives in Washington Heights. So yeah, I ended up in Harlem and I got a job working with young people and I was like, this is what it is. And it has just really blossomed. And I don't believe had I stayed in Los Angeles, I would have gotten this outcome. Mm-hmm. And so I'm super grateful. Um, to be in New York. Yeah. I mean, it's a global city and I have really, you know, if they say if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And it sounds like you're saying that you're grateful for your entire path. Absolutely. You know, like you're privileged for everything that you went through because now because of that specific story, you're able to do what you're doing now. Yep. yep. And I also recognize that you can be in a place of oppression and have one foot there and one foot in the space of privilege. Because mm. let's face it, the halo effect is real. The way I look has definitely opened a lot of doors for me. Mm. And I recognize that and I'm grateful. And And I think my whole entire life has been a, a twister game of of oppression and privilege, right? Ooh, that's okay. fascinating. Like you think yeah. about how twister you have hands on yeah, all those spaces. Right. And I yeah. am a firm believer that I have really vacillated these these uh, spaces and really been able to kind of be insightful and, and really look within to say, well, yeah. how does this make me feel? How does this impact the things I say, the way I move? And, and what does that mean to me? Can I ask you, because I'm just thinking about our listeners, what's your message to the young woman or the young man listening right now who is similarly in that um, game of twister of oppression and privilege, who's biracial, who's looking for a path? Well, I think even white women are sitting in that space too, right? You're privileged because you're white. You're oppressed because you're a woman. Yeah. I think just recognizing that that is a thing mm. and that the intersectionality is is like all the spaces you can experience oppression. Yeah. Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw. Yes. Um, if you haven't read some of her work. Kimberly Crenshaw, who yeah. coined the term intersectionality. intersectionality. And it's literally like an She's intersection. Changed, she changed mm-hmm. our world. Totally. There's a black woman who changed the way we look at the world, the way we talk, the way we experience the world. And too many people do not know her name. Thank yeah. you for mentioning yeah. her. She's amazing. She just spoke at the new school. I got to meet her. And I was uh. like beaming because <gasps> she's like my Rihanna. Um, but you know, the idea of really understanding how other people might be experiencing forms of oppression that you may never know, but if you can recognize what intersectionality is amazing. If you're somebody who has these multiple identities, just know that and, and go forth boldly recognizing and accepting like, okay, maybe society might find uh, or oppress me because I'm trans or I'm black or I'm biracial or whatever. And just go forth boldly, honey, and recognize that as a gift. Mm-hmm. They might oppress mm-hmm. you and that's super shitty, but don't, don't stop fighting for equality. Don't, but don't be nasty. Sometimes I see people going ham on people and I'm like, well, that's not getting <laughs> right. us anywhere. Right. Um, and, and for people who really sit in places of privilege, open your eyes, look around, and educate yourself to better understand what intersectionality is, what oppression looks like for people. Be okay with making mistakes because I make them all the time. And then just when you realize you've made a mistake or you've said something, educate yourself. And I would go as far as to say, before you apologize, take a pause, mm-hmm. maybe do a little research, mm-hmm. organize your thoughts, and then go back with an apology that is not empty. Oh, go back. Right. That's so yeah. important. Yeah. Right? And say, understand you know what? what you're apologizing for. Totally. Be like, you know what? I now see I read this article or I did a little research and you know what? I'm fucked up. I had I was fucked up when I said that. Now I'm more informed. Now I'm still fucked up, but I have a little more information. A, yes. <laughs> and I'm I'm showing you as my friend, my colleague, someone in my life. Give right. that apology some heft. Yeah. The universe, right? Yeah. Like, um, yeah, I'm I'm working 
on being better. Don't just say sorry about that. Yeah. Don't. Again, I hope the listeners are not bogged down by all this hefty information. No. What what are you talking about? That's why you're here. I I know. know. That's exactly what we need. We want this. Everybody listening wants this. Yeah. You know what? So I am so interested in how you said that about like make an apology with some substance to it Mm -hmm. because it like put a little work into your apology, right? Yes. If you're a white person and you fuck up, put some work into your apology. And I'm thinking about um, Tiffany Dufu, mm-hmm. who is a mentor to women across the country, young women. She's made a career out of mentoring young women and encouraging them to get into politics and to have professional relationships. She started this thing called The Crew. And she grew up in the black church. And one of the things that she said to me, and she's the most like upbeat, bubbly, energetic person I've ever known in my life. And she said something so smart and so herb, but it had such a big impact on me because she said, I'm so tired from yeah. telling people yeah. and helping people understand. Like if you're a white person and you have a really close black girlfriend, like you need to get into that space of understanding that exhaustion, I think. And yes. like, yes, there's a reason that black women invented self-care. Yeah, but unfortunately, and then it got co-opted. Yeah, and then unfortunately, a lot of Black women don't even have the life space, or the, mm. or the time, or yeah, the, yeah, anything to to really indulge. That's privilege now yeah. to be able to do self care. And it used to be like a survival thing. Like I really learned about self care from my Black girlfriends. They taught me that tradition and told me this. My mom taught me this because my mom said society doesn't value you. You need to take care of your beautiful self. Yep and do it. Yep. And then, yeah, now self-care is like a thing that yeah. whenever, this is something that drives me crazy on Twitter. Uh, a guy on Twitter mocking self-care. <laughs> I'm like, do you know who invented self-care? You got to knock that off. Yeah. And then even, but even beyond that, sometimes what frustrates me is like working in disenfranchised communities and like people come in and be like, self-care is so important without taking into account, if I got three mouths to feed and I'm working four jobs, where, do like, I find where, that? where is the How self-care? am I supposed How? to do this? Where? How? Yeah. And be realistic about that. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, we oftentimes take for granted the opportunities to do self-care, but I always try to remind communities I work with, um, even in the smallest way, try to do a little something around self-care, whether it's, you know, I carry a pocket journal, right? Um, And when I'm feeling a type of way, like yesterday, the weather was bad and I had a hard day at work, I really checked into my feelings and I was like, how am I feeling right now? And I wrote sad and then I put a little semicolon and then I thought to myself, why am I feeling sad? And then I wrote down why I was feeling sad. Then I had frustrated And then I wrote down why I thought I was feeling frustrated. Then I wrote tired. And then I wrote down what I thought was making me tired. And that in itself is self-care because I took, I was on the train. You took a few minute, took minutes to yourself check to in. do that, to check, to in, check, with in, yourself. check in. It doesn't have to be this big hour, right. two hour nope. thing every single day. Like take a little, take a little beat in your day, give yourself self care. And yep. if you're hating on self care, go fuck yourself. Or oh. literally <laughs> masturbate. Or I, that's my type of self care. I love it's the masturbating. Best. That is, and what you need, you need to be asleep. You need to be in the, and if you have to co sleep with your child, Child, hit that bathroom. Hit that bathroom. Right. Hey, you're in the shower. Masturbate in the shower. You got a shower. Masturbate. Boom. There you go. Whenever you can. I mean, I'm a firm believer in that. We have to. I know we have have to wrap wrap up. up. I'm getting the sign from the sound room. But I want want to just ask one more thing. What do you, what is your message to the young woman listening who's like, the sexology space isn't for me. I'm so interested in it. But like, my community is not going to understand that or whatever. And then can you also tell people how they can find you? Yeah. Okay. So two things. I get a lot of... uh, messages about how do I become a sexologist? Okay. Here's what I have to say. Do the fucking work. I really get annoyed and I have to say this and I'll try to make it quick. I get very, very annoyed with people who have never actually volunteered at a clinic, worked in a battered women's shelter. You've never done that yet. All of a sudden, because you're a writer, you now are a sex expert. No, you are not. Take a 14 year old to a clinic to find out they're pregnant and sit with them and help them process Maybe then you'll know. Sit with somebody who just found out they're HIV positive. Sit with some, do the fucking work. Do the fucking work. And it's not just titties and balls and sucking and fucking. It's so much deeper. So Mm -hmm. if you can, 
places like Out of the Closet in Los Angeles, you can volunteer and work in their clothing store. Find ways to get involved with the work and it'll, it, it will evolve. Additionally, there are opportunities to take classes. Um, yes, I know people do trainings online through like online stuff, master classes. Most states have classes you can take. Planned Parenthood offers community classes. Go there. Get out there. And do the work and recognize it's not all about sucking and fucking. That's the one thing I wish people would. Un- I do so little of that. Not to say I can't teach you how to right. pop that pussy. You can. <laughs> but that's, to me, that's low-hanging fruit. That's right. light work. Mm-hmm. Let's go real deep and, and let's really do the work. Right. I mm. like that you're bringing self, you're bringing social justice to the sex positivity movement. You're yeah. like, you guys take, yeah. take like, yeah. And follow take a me. real look. You can find me on yes, all social exactly. media. There we go. What at, what's your handle? At MH Sexpert. Um, the, the, I love your Instagram. Thank you. Michelle wore a crave vibrator to a Knicks game. And I was like, I'm hating on her for the Knicks. And I'm just loving that she wore that Crave vibrator. It's a love-hate relationship. Yeah, it was <laughs> a free. Love, love. Totally. love, 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 love. And it was a free, it was a free <laughs> ticket. And then, um, you know, please follow me. Stay tuned. I'm currently um, working to get my full spectrum doula license. All and, right. Um, by the end of 2020, I'll, I will be opening a doula agency. Oh, congratulations. Yes. Yeah. So Michelle, thank you for being here. Yeah. By the way, I'm sorry that we created extra work for you with the code switching. Oh, it's That's fine. work. I like it. I enjoy it. <laughs> we love that you were here. Yeah, we really appreciate it. So much, so much knowledge bombs yes. you just dropped on Thank us, you. which is beautiful. Thank I, you. People's minds are going to be blown. Great. Thank you, Michelle. No problem. Hey, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, it would help us a lot if you would leave a review. Yeah. Leave a review, subscribe. We want to know how you guys felt about the episode. It really helps us out a lot to continue the success of the podcast and keep spreading our message.